Well, I just want to say how wonderful it is to have the choir back with us after their summer break. I cannot believe you pulled that off after one practice this past week, and it was just absolutely stunning and beautiful. It was great to see. Uh, Thank you, choir. Uh, You bless us uh, with your gifts. It was also quite amusing, too, watching people come in, realizing this was the first Sunday that the choir was back, and it was like watching the Jewish diaspora have to move away from the promised land, and then because they found their land to be occupied, and then as soon as they left, they went right back to the promised land over there, too. So (laughs) it's fun to watch you guys. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, we ask that you would give us an affection for your word. Not, Lord, because we love learning, not because we enjoy academic exercises, but your word reveals to us who you are, the character of the type of God you are, Lord, that should make us to to hunger and thirst after righteousness because we desire to please you, knowing that you love us so much. So, Lord, work in us today. Transform us by the power of your word. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, I imagine this comes as no surprise to you, but I love the Bible. I'm sure you're probably thinking, well, of course you love the Bible, Blair. You're a preacher. It's your job to say that. Well, on one level, that is true, but my love for the Scriptures go beyond that. I don't just love the Bible in the same way that I love the novels of Will White or Fyodor Dostoevsky or the nonfiction writings of my favorite historians. I love this book because, to me, it it not only contains the words of life, but there's also something unique in the way that this book was assembled, the way that it seems to reveal my own heart within its pages, the, the way it reveals God with this supernatural lingering effect that transforms me. Brian Milby and I were talking about it earlier this week. He made a comment, something along the lines of, just when I think that I've got this figured out, I discover there is so much more and there's a deeper level to go. I knew exactly what he meant. The more you read, the more you meditate and study this book, you become in awe of what the Holy Spirit has done in it and through it. So I honestly can say, even if I wasn't a professional preacher, I would still love the Bible. And just one of the many reasons I love the scriptures is that they don't gloss over heroes as if they had no flaws. But the word portrays them as real human beings, people like you and me. There are times when I read the modern biographies of of saints of old that, that while they inspire me, they also make me feel like I will never measure up in life. I think there's no way I can be holy like that. And that's because the authors have glossed over their faults. The Bible, however doesn't do that. In its pages, there is only one flawless, perfect human being, Jesus, the Son of God. And the beauty of that portrayal is that he is perfect so that I don't have to be. So the Bible reveals the highs and the lows of its human characters. When I read of them, I'm astounded at how quickly they can move from a high point in their life to a low point. Like when David is finally king over all of Israel, and he's at the height of his power and favor with God in one moment, and then in the very next, he goes to the rooftop of his palace, and he lusts over Bathsheba. Or the apostle Peter courageously and bravely answers Jesus' question of, who do people say that I am with, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in the very next chapter, Peter actually rebukes Jesus for prophesying about his death on the cross. 
or Elijah immediately after destroying the priest of Baal withdraws in a weak moment of doubt. Highs and then immediate lows. I think, how could they? But then I think about how often this happens to me. I'm on some spiritual high and all is going well, and then it seems out of the blue, some temptation comes along and I am laid low even when I feel like I'm at my strongest. That ever happened to you? Yeah, of course it has. And yet that is the beauty of the scriptures. Because the primary hero is not the human characters, but the Lord God Almighty. While we see the flaws of these people, David, Peter, Job, Jonah, Paul, it's not their own strength or mountaintop moments that sustain them. It is the power of God that holds them and keeps them even when they are at their darkest and lowest moments of their life. They don't triumph in their own power, but the Lord of heaven and earth triumphs through them. And that is the message that I need to hear over and over and over again. This is why I immerse myself in this wonderful book. This is why I am drawn to its pages. I can't imagine that I'm the only one that feels that way. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. And within this chapter, we have one of these moments with Abram. In way of a quick review, let me remind you of the mountaintop moment Abram had in chapter 15. After a long, fruitful relationship of a period of about 15 years, Yahweh strikes a formal covenant with Abram. And for the first time in his life, Abram feels the immense power and holiness of this almighty God. He knows what it's like to fear and tremble before this powerful deity. And in the same moment, Yahweh, this same God, promises to be his friend. God promises this childless man descendants as numerous as the stars and a land in some of the most fertile area of the Middle East. He not only promises this to Abram, but Yahweh takes on the conditions upon himself. The Lord even performs a a dramatized curse, symbolically portraying that a curse should fall upon God if he doesn't keep his promise. And what does Abram have to do? Nothing. All he is expected to do is believe that Yahweh will do this. And after coming into contact with such divine power, it should be a no-brainer that every promise will become true. It's a mountaintop moment. Abraham has everything going for him. He has the complete backing of the one whom we read on the very first page of Genesis. In the beginning, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Certainly, this is going to inspire him to live in perfect obedience to this promise, right? But in the very next scene, Abram blows it. And we can see in chapter 16 these three phases here. First, we'll see a human solution to a divine dilemma. Abram and his wife Sarah will demonstrate a lack of faith in God's promise. And in doing so, they'll make a grave mistake that could jeopardize that promise. But we shall also see in the next phase that even in the failure of their sin, God has a divine purpose with their actions, which in the third phase will blossom into a divine privilege. It will demonstrate that when we are at our lowest, God will triumph and he will prove himself glorious. So let's start in the first phase where we see a human solution to a divine dilemma. And the problem is in the very first sentence of the chapter. Now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. God had promised Abram that he would have a physical descendant, but Sarah remained childless. 
She was 75 years old, past her childbearing years, and she had rightly deduced in verse 2 that Yahweh had prevented her from having children. But her interpretation of the circumstances was completely wrong. She thought because God had not given her children already that he was incapable of providing her any in the future. She'd already forgotten the maxim of what Yahweh wants, Yahweh gets. This is the God of the universe who merely spoke and life came into being. He can do the impossible. He can do anything he wants. But because Sarah had not seen the promise coming into being yet, she decides she needs to help God along this a little bit. Isn't it the case with us so often? We get impatient with God. We may know his will, but rather than wait, we just decide that he needs our help, our prodding a bit. I frequently see it in younger folks. We want to get married, they say, but rather than prepare for marriage, they just head over to the justice of the peace and tie the knot. We want the things that our parents have now, and then they get entangled in debt rather than learn how to use money wisely. I see it in people entering the ministry. They feel God's call, and rather than learn the tools of ministry and rightly dividing the word, they just jump right in it and begin counseling, preaching, and teaching without understanding how to do it. In fact, that was me early in my ministry, and I cringe to think of some of the practices that I did early on because I was impatient to learn from the scriptures how to do ministry empowered by God. But this doesn't just apply to youth and inexperience. May I remind you that Sarai is 75 years old in this text, and she had had enough experiences with Yahweh to think differently. She proposes a solution to this seeming dilemma. She tells Abram to take her Egyptian servant Hagar as his concubine for the purpose of having a child through her. Hagar will act as a surrogate for this couple. Now, this is wrong on two levels. First, this was not an unusual practice in this time period where a prominent wife could not have children and she would encourage her husband to have a child through someone else and she would adopt that child. But it ruins the primary purpose of marriage. Keep a finger here in Genesis 16 and turn back to Genesis chapter 2, which is found on page 2 of your Bible. Let me remind you, in the beginning that all of creation was under obligation to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But Adam had the creation mandate to rule over the earth. But man didn't just do this alone. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And we see in the verses that follow that God went to great lengths to show Adam what he was about to do was unique with him with this parade of animals and then causing Adam to fall asleep and creating Eve from his side. And so we read of Adam's reaction when he first sees his wife. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Moses comments on this event by pronouncing here, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The primary purpose of marriage is companionship. 
It is to portray the one flesh relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. All of creation was obligated to reproduce and fill the earth, but mankind, as God's image bearers, was granted this special gift of companionship. And companionship precedes reproduction. What Sarai just did in Genesis 16 was replace and elevate the primary purpose of marriage of companionship with reproduction. And second, over and above this, was that Abram failed to lead his wife spiritually. It was to Abram whom the promise was made. But instead of leading by trusting God, he goes along with his wife's plan. It reminds us of another time when a husband failed to lead, doesn't it? The very first sin of mankind? And I don't think that it's mere coincidence that the narrator here in verse 3 uses the same exact Hebrew verb as Genesis 3, 6. Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram, her husband. Same words as Eve when she took the fruit and gave it to her husband. Both men should have stepped up and put a stop to this. They were charged with protecting the promise. And naturally, the consequences are the same as any other time that we think we're helping God with our solution. A horrible resentment breeds between Sarai and Hagar. When Hagar becomes pregnant, she looks at Sarai with dishonor. Now, contempt may or may not be too strong a word in English. But how could she not resent Sarai as she would be claiming her baby as her own? And then Sarai becomes Hagar, or becomes jealous of Hagar here. It proves what she had feared in her mind, that Abram was the fertile one and she was not, that she was the reason they could not have children. And again, rather than assert any leadership, Abram tells Sarai to do what she wants with Hagar. And verse 6 tells us that she treated Hagar harshly. The word translated harshly is the same exact Hebrew word that's used in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, which the ESV translates as afflicted. And it's the same word in Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, which describes the treatment of how the Egyptians treated their slaves, the Israelites. Sarai's treatment of her must have been severe. It caused Hagar, a pregnant servant, to run away alone. She would rather face her chances in the wilderness rather than remain in Sarai's service. What a mess this couple have made trying to help God along. But this is where the beauty comes in. God can even redeem our sin. Now, we should never seek to sin so that the Lord may redeem it. But it will prove that even in our greatest failures, God will be glorified. I find these remaining nine verses to be utterly beautiful. God seeks out this desperate woman on the run. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shear. Now, by the way, this was quite a distance from Hebron. She had gone a long way to Shear. But God finds her in the wilderness by this spring. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? This event is even more amazing than you realize. This is the only example in all of ancient Near East literature of a deity recognizing, identifying, and speaking to a woman. He knows her name, 
and her position. Hagar, servant of Sarai. What tenderness. And he just said who she was, so he certainly knows where she had come from. So this question must be to get her to acknowledge and to confess her present situation. This encounter reminds me of another divine encounter with a woman by another source of water. The Samaritan woman whom no one wanted, who came to draw water from a well that Jesus just happened to be sitting by. And we may remember that Samaritan woman was the first person on earth whom Jesus revealed his full identity, that he was the Messiah. It makes you wonder, did she find Jesus or did Jesus find her? But like that woman, here Hagar must acknowledge her situation. I am fleeing my mistress Sarai. But this angel of the Lord tells Hagar to return and to submit to her situation. Yahweh has a purpose for Hagar and for her son. Verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. Where have we heard a promise like that before? Just in the previous chapter with Abram. This is part of fulfilling the purpose of Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, where Abram will be a blessing to all the people on the earth. The baby of Hagar, Ishmael, will be fruitful because he is a descendant of Abram. Like Jacob, he will have 12 sons who become princes. But there is more here. Verse 11, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Ishmael means God hears. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So God promises Hagar safety, and not only that, he ensures the safety of her son, something I know had to be in Hagar's mind and might have been the motivating reason why she ran away. What if Sarai wanted not only Hagar eliminated, but her son dead as well? But God ensures her not only her son's safety, but that he too will become a great nation. But there will be consequences as well for Abram's and Sarai's folly. As judgment against them, Ishmael's descendants will be a thorn in the side of Abram and Sarai's descendants. And in the final phase, we see that Hagar is granted a divine privilege. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Again, another unique situation. This is the only example in all of ancient Near East literature of a woman naming or giving a name to a deity. She calls him the God who sees, but she also personalizes it. This is the God who sees me. Yahweh, God of the universe, sees and hears this runaway Egyptian servant woman. How magnificent is that? It's such a grand moment that she names the spring, which later becomes a well. Therefore, the well was called Bir Laharoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar's act of faith was to trust God and return to this miserable household, and she obeys. But just as the Lord said, it comes to fruition. Hagar has a son. If she had had a daughter, all of this would have meant the situation was out of God's control. But she didn't. 
it will be exactly as Yahweh said. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Note, too, that Abram, not Sarai, names him, which means Abram makes him his own, but Sarai does not adopt it. So let's stop there. Let's take stock for a moment of four lessons that we learn from this story. Lesson number one is the problem of God plus. Lesson number one is the problem of God plus. Even though we may know God's will, his word and his truth, we always get ourselves into trouble when we bring our own opinions and solutions alongside of his. Thus, we elevate our thinking and our authority to the level of God's. We can be so guilty of this problem of God plus this, whatever that is. Let me give you a few examples. We desperately want our children to be saved. And we know that God delights to save. But yet, rather than wait on the Lord, we're going to help them out a little bit. We say we'll come up with a prayer that our kids can pray when they receive Jesus. And then when they pray it, that's when they'll know salvation. So our motivation becomes, get my child to say the prayer rather than wait upon the Lord to save them at the right time. We need to help God along. He needs to get busy about this so that we can ensure that our children are safe. It's God plus this prayer. Another example is we want lost people to come and experience the church. That's a noble endeavor. But too often, rather than obeying the Bible, we add things to the worship service to make it more appealing to the cultural mores of our society. So church services become more and more entertaining. And perhaps lots of people come through the doors. But are they coming to experience a God who calls them to repentance and to be saved from their sins or to be entertained and feel good and affirmed about who they are presently. And of course, we see this God plus so often in how people desire to know Jesus. We add some condition to their belief. You can only be saved by your faith in Christ and your participation in the sacraments. You can only be saved by faith in Christ and your service to the church. You can only be saved by faith in Christ and your baptism. Or worse, You must clean yourself up first before you can place your faith in Christ. The problem of God plus this or that is still very real today. Second, we have the lesson that God can redeem the worst of our situations. God can redeem the worst of our situations. Now, the effects of God's purposes in Hagar and Ishmael will not be pleasant to Abram and Sarai, as it's going to have ramifications later in the story. But God's faithfulness to Hagar will become a pattern that we'll see all throughout the scope of the Bible and church history. Things that seemingly appear disastrous will become moments where God will receive glory. Moses' own story of fleeing into the wilderness after murdering an Egyptian will lead him into becoming the leader of Israel. The enslavement of the Hebrew people will result in the glory of God's powerful deliverance of them from one of the most notable empires in ancient history. Jeremiah's 
pitiful cries of this prophecy as the people bring about God's wrath upon themselves in exile will turn into rejoicing as the people are returned to the promised land. The broken walls around Jerusalem become a moment when the people are united by Nehemiah to rebuild those walls so that the true worship of Yahweh might continue in the temple. The zealous Jew that we just read about in 1 Timothy chapter 1 who makes it his life's goal to eradicate Christianity, becomes the greatest Christian missionary that ever lived. Jim Elliott and his friends are murdered on the shores of a river in Ecuador, only to have the very tribe that murdered him become evangelical Christians. And of course, the greatest of these is that the Son of God is whipped, beaten to a pulp, hung on a cross until dead, receiving all of the wrath and curse of our sin that we deserve from his Holy Father. The most despicable act to ever occur on the earth becomes the triumphal event that saves God's people as Jesus rises from the grave to assume his title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So yes, my friend, you might be in the worst of your circumstances right now. You may have failed the test. You may not have made the team. Your husband may have left you. Your cancer may have returned. Your spouse may have died. They may berate you in the streets because of your faith. But God can redeem each and every situation for his glory. Third, don't miss the fact with the race of the Ishmaelites that God is sovereign over all the nations. He is sovereign over all nations. And as we said last week, entry into God's chosen people is not through a bloodline, but through faith in the promises of God as he brings salvation through his only begotten son, Jesus. The call to proclaim to the nations faith in these promises is just as valid today as it was in Genesis. Therefore, God can work in Egyptian like Hagar. He can work in the descendants of Ishmael and in the descendants of Lot and his daughter, the Moabites, and people like Ruth. And in the Greeks like Luke and Timothy and in the Africans like Augustine and Athanasius and in the Angles like Whitfield or Spurgeon or in the Americas like a Sproul or a MacArthur. The gospel has the power to save from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is sovereign over them all. So this should motivate our call to missions. But it's not only to the world at large. This gospel can save your neighbor. It can save your classmate. It can save your relative, your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your in-laws. So people, if Yahweh is the God and Savior of the nations, why are you so afraid to go and tell? It's a simple message. Perhaps you fear that it won't work, but you don't save anyone. God does through his message. Don't be afraid to share. And finally, let us praise the God who sees you and hears you. The God who sees you and hears you. God saw this runaway, pregnant, Egyptian servant girl, and he listened to her cries, so much so that he wanted her to name her son Ishmael. God hears.
I've heard you, Hagar. I've heard of your situation. God sees you where you are right now. He knows your situation. It's like David when he wrote Psalm 139. A lot of people get fearful when they read Psalm 139 because they think that that God's looking for something wrong in your life, that that's what that passage is about. It's not. When David says, search me and try me, O Lord, he he recognizes it's only God's goodness that can come to him. God means good to come to him. So David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. David took comfort in the fact that God sees him and knows exactly where he's at right now. The same God is the God that Moses writes about in Exodus where he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is your God who sees you. That is the God who hears you right now. I know that there are people in this congregation that are going through some difficult, difficult situations. Some of you have marriages that are struggling right now. And it's every day. It's just a struggle just to hang on. Some of you are battling some really significant illnesses. Some of you have kids who are rebellious in their adult years. And you want so badly for them to come back home. Some of you are fearful even now to this day, even knowing that Christ died for your sin, you're fearful to approach him because you keep having some kind of recurring sin in your heart over and over again. This is the God who sees you. This is the God who hears you. He cares about you. He cares about you. He cares about you. He cares about you. He sees you and he hears you. This is the merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, God. Why would you not come to him today? Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you for so many wonderful, precious examples in your word of people who are struggling, people who blow it, people who make mistakes, and yet your grace is enough. It is sufficient in every time of our lives, whether we are suffering, whether we are rebelling, whether we are dealing with difficult circumstances of other people, Lord, your grace is enough. And so, Lord, we pray that that we would recognize you are the God who sees us and that you are the God that hears us, that you know precisely what our situation is right now, that nothing is outside of your control, that you are sovereignly governing things, Lord, so that you might use whatever situation we are in to be redeemed for your glory. So, Lord, we pray that your righteousness might shine through us, that your goodness, that your steadfast love would shine through us, Lord, 
We pray you would grant us the strength to endure. We pray that you would grant us the power to make changes and to transform our lives so that we might give you all the glory. But most of all, Lord, we pray for that one person, Lord, who is asking, God, do you see me right now? Do you hear me? That one person who's crying out today for salvation, saying, please come save me, save me, save me. We pray, Lord, that they would hear the words of this hymn and recognize that you want them to come to them because you do see them and you do hear them. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.